Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like finding an onion ring in your french fries good. Feel that way every single day when you work with a Trunk Club personal stylist. Meet your stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. FreshBooks is a ridiculously easy-to-use cloud accounting software for small business owners that saves you time and gets you paid faster. Now used by over 10 million people worldwide. For your 30-day free trial, go to freshbooks.com slash Forbes and enter interview in the how did you hear about us section. This is the Forbes interview on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do deep dive interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. These are the faces you see on the cover of Forbes. And if they aren't in the cover, they easily could be. My guest, Joe Moglia, has one of the most unique resumes around. Today, he's head coach and chair of athletics at Coastal Carolina University with an overall record of 51 and 15. But he's also the chairman of the board of TD Ameritrade, the $20 billion brokerage firm. How did that happen? Well, on today's show, we'll hear Joe Moglia's improbable journey from college football coach to Wall Street CEO and back to football. Well, Joe, thanks so much for joining us. You know, you've had a remarkable career that has been defined not only by hard work, but making big career changes and taping, taking big leaps of faith. Um, and there was a great book that my colleague Monty Burke wrote. Um, and the, the opening of it is you on, freezing on an army cot in Dartmouth in the equipment room. <laughs> so talk to me about this early life and when, what made you jump to Wall Street. And I want to hear this first big leap of faith. Well, my first year as defensive coordinator at Dartmouth uh, was 1981. And by then, uh, my wife and I had had four children. And uh, the, the life of a football coach is not easy. And we were going, going through some stress and uh, we were going through a divorce. But the issue for me was I couldn't afford to live independently and support my wife and children. So I moved into the storage room above the football offices. And as you said, Steve, it was freezing because it had no heat. And this is, here, no, this is New Hampshire. It yep. was pretty cold there. Well, I could see my breath in the wintertime, which normally lasted about five months. I lived there for two years. Two years. How did that go down? Did you ask permission? Did the, the head coach say go for it? I did. Kind of, no, no, I did. I said uh, my, my head, the head coach knew that I was going through a divorce and we were going through our separation and knew I couldn't afford to go live someplace else. Mm-hmm. So that was a spot that I was able to take advantage of. Yeah, you were showering in the team locker room and everything? I sh- showered where we, in our own locker room. Yeah. yeah. But that's what I did. Yeah. And there were times when it would get so cold, I would take electric heaters from the football office and bring them up, <laughs> pull them by my... I had one by my stomach, one by my feet. I'd wear like two pairs of sweats or three pairs of sweats and get under some blankets. And uh, you go forward, fast forward a little bit from there, and it's January 1984. And my goal was to be the head coach at a major, major school. And uh, the University of Miami upsets Nebraska for the Mm -hmm. national championship. Their secondary coach, Mike Archer, takes the head job at LSU. The defensive coordinator, Tom Malavadati, is going to go to the NFL the next year. I get offered the opportunity to succeed Archer as a secondary coach and then succeed Alavadati's defensive coordinator. Now, for me to get a next big job, to go from defensive coordinator in the Ivy League to defensive coordinator for the national championship team, Miami in the 80s, that would have been an incredible, incredible opportunity. Plus, the equipment room there is a lot warmer than, than <laughs> so it Amber. is a lot warmer than Carl Gables. And a typical coach, though, you work five months, 80 hours a week. You don't get a day off. Your entire career is dependent upon what you do on Saturday. Mm-hmm. And... 
I'm going to live in Coral Gables, but my kids are still going to live with their mom in New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, toughest career decision I've ever made. And over two decades of football, over two decades of the business world was turning down that job because it told me I had to get out of football. But I didn't think I could do my job as a coach if I couldn't live up to my responsibilities as a father. Mm-hmm. So bottom line, I do turn down the job. And then I realized I need to be able to figure something out. And I always had an interest in Wall Street. I had majored in economics when I was in school. And I interviewed, I hustled, I interviewed just about every place I possibly could. And eventually, Merrill Lynch gave me the opportunity. They put me in their NBA training program with 26 of us, mm-hmm. 25 NBAs and one football coach. And back then, nobody thought this football guy was going to make it. Now, you looked you looked very different. Your background was very different than most of your training class at Merrill. How did you get into that program? Well, I interviewed. I interviewed. I was actually, uh, there was a guy by the Norris Olson who was the guy in charge of the Vero Beach office who I met mm-hmm. through an alumnus at Dartmouth. And he offered me a job. But I didn't want to go to the retail side. I knew I wanted to go to the institutional side. I wanted to be in New York. He happened to know the guy that was in charge of all national sales at the time, Bill O'Connor. Um, I interviewed with him. His assistant, fixed income guy at the time, was a guy by the name of Mike Quinn. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike and Bill interviewed me. And while I was totally different from the typical MBA that was coming in the door, they realized I had gone through, well, I had been a coach for 16 years. I was 35 years old, gone through a divorce. I had four kids. I lived a life that others didn't. And they appreciated the fact that I had gone through a lot of stress and Coaching, there is a lot of stress associated with that. And they thought that I had the characteristics where that would turn out to be a good fit for what the sales side of, of Wall Street was. And that turned out to be the case. Now, how did you go from, you know, how did you change your lifestyle and your mindset from being, you know, a coach, you know, one of the, like, the leaders of, of the school program to being the low guy in a totem pole, going from kind of being the professor to the student? How did you kind of get your head around that? Well, the reality is you always begin as the low guy in the totem pole. So when I first began as a coach, I was the assistant. My very, very first year, I'm the assistant JV coach at Fordham Prep, Old Boys Catholic High School in the Bronx. Um, and then, then certainly I, I worked at my father's fruit store. My dad was born in Italy, came mm-hmm. to this country when he was 11, never finished eighth grade. He sold bananas and apples. And I began for him when I was 10 years old. So that was sort of starting at the bottom. But I also knew I was transitioning to a brand new industry, a brand new career path that I had zero experience in. So I expect to start at the bottom. I didn't mm-hmm. expect anything else. Um, the difference was the typical MBA had an academic background in Wall Street and what was going on. I didn't have that. I didn't know what stocks really were at the yeah. time or bonds were, and I still had to go through that transition. And how did you do that? I know, you know as a coach, you study, you prepare. You, know, it's all, you spend the entire week getting ready for you know, three hours on, on Saturday. How do you how'd you prepare yourself to you know learn fast, learn the new playbook at, at Merrill? The issue is um, I had a lot at stake. And my reputation at the time was good enough that I probably gave myself three years and I could go back to football if things didn't work out. But I didn't want that to be the case. I still have four children, yeah. and I'm still responsible for them, and I got to take care of them. So I had to make this work. Plus, I did feel that it was something that I, I'd be good at ultimately. Now, at the time, my we grew up in the Diamond Street section of New York, which is gang area. Um, subsequent to that, my parents had moved to Yonkers. Mm-hmm. So I was living with them because I couldn't afford to live on my own. So I would take, I would walk to the bus, which took me an hour and a half, the bus to the subway, the su- I'm sorry, to the train, the train mm-hmm. to the subway. It took me an hour and a half one way. 
Well, I used that hour and a half to study as much as I could. Mm-hmm. And I never stopped asking questions. I never stopped reading about the different things that I was responsible for. But whenever part of your program, they put you on the trading floor and you're in the different areas in the firm. And I got a pretty good feel for what was going on. Didn't know that much, but mm-hmm. a pretty good feel for that. So for me, for a year, I mean, that was all I did was kind of study and hustle, et cetera, until ultimately you get your first job as a producer. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Introducing an all-new crossover Toyota CHR, an edgy new ride that effortlessly takes center stage. Uniquely expressive CHR's precision cut lines let it shine from every angle. Agile handling helps this crossover show off its athletic side with a driver-focused cockpit that keeps you in command. Best of all, with its standard Toyota Safety Sense P-suite of active safety technologies, you'll get a valuable package of safety and cool tech. So embrace and express that bold spirit in the smartest way possible. Visit toyota.com c-hr to learn more. Drivers are responsible for their own safety driving. Always pay attention to your surroundings and drive safely depending on the conditions of roads, weather, and the vehicle. The systems may not work as intended. See owner's manual for additional limitations and details. What did you learn in the football life that helped you in the Wall Street life? I think think there are three things that that jump off the page. Anytime I think you were a leader, anytime you're going to be doing something and other people are involved, you have to understand people. You have to understand the different skill sets, what everybody brings to the table. I think I had that. Mm-hmm. I think also a lot of people just don't listen. I think I'm a great listener, and that was important, I think, both as a coach and in football. And the third thing is you really have to be able to know how to handle yourself under stress. If you can't do that in the football life, you're going to get fired. A lot of mm-hmm. people get fired a lot faster in football than they do in Wall Street. But those skill sets that, frankly, I honed in football – were skill sets that helped me a lot in the business world. And frankly, I was a much better business guy because of my 16 years experience as a coach. Being able to handle stress, was that something that you taught yourself or you think you've always been kind of a a person that thrives on stress, kind of even keeled? I think I'm even keeled, but you don't want in a profession like football and certainly on Wall Street, you've got to even out the highs and the lows. You cannot be too euphoric when things are going well. You cannot get too down when things are not going well. and again, I grew up in an environment just working in my father's fruit store, being part of a gang when I was a kid, um, getting married young. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was a father and a husband when I was in school. I had to support myself and my family through that period. Uh, so I, stress was always a part of my life. And I don't think I was thinking I have a lot of stress. I just knew that I had to be able to get through whatever phases of my life I was getting through. So that was just part of my, part of my background, frankly. And you were very successful at Merrill Lynch. You're going from the, the new salesman. Tell me a little bit about kind of fast. Give me a, a quick fast forward to your career, your, fir- your f- first of many careers uh, on the street. Well, in the beginning, I was getting part of the NBA program. So I was, I was the outsider part of that program. Everybody else was, had been recruited by the human resource department. Yeah. Um, but I worked hard. I learned. And I was ultimately given a job as a long-term taxable debt uh, sales guy on our fixed income floor. In fact, one of the guys that interviewed me for my job back then and one of the guys that I got to work with later on happened to be a guy by the name of Bob Bertoni, oh, who happened sounds, to be your dad. That sounds, sounds familiar. a great, great, great friend and a very good man and was one of the guys that taught me. Mm-hmm. So I began as a sales guy. I was a prolific sales guy for us. I did very, very well as a salesman. Uh, we started to put together sales teams. I was part of that along mm-hmm. with your dad. Yeah. Um, uh, then from there, I moved into executive management relatively quickly. 
So I was ultimately re- responsible for global fixed income institutional sales. Uh, they wanted to broaden me out and give me more of a business background, so I ran our municipal division. And then later on, I had moved from the executive committee on the institutional side of the firm to the executive committee on the private client side of the mm-hmm. firm. And I ultimately became responsible for all of our investment products, the insurance company, the 401k business, the middle market business. And that was my tenure at Merrill Lynch. That's good. I imagine coaching 18-year-old football players is the same thing as coaching a bunch of Wall Street traders in the 80s and 90s. So I'm sure your (laughs) skill set worked well there. There's a a maturity equality that's associated with that. There are a lot of guys on Wall Street that become prima donnas. There are a lot of guys that really do work hard. And I said in the very beginning, Steve, that you've got to understand people to be effective in the job because that's who you've got to deal with. And you've got Mm -hmm. to be able to maximize your potential if you're in charge of an organization or you're in charge of a group or you have to know how to work with them if indeed you're, you're a producer. And a lot of people on Wall Street, especially, you know, a decade ago, both men and women were athletes. Um, it seems like a big draw. College athletes went on to be traders and salespeople. Did that help you as being, a, you know, having that background, that pedigree in college sports? Did that help you kind of identify and interact with, the, with your peers and people there? Yeah, I think everybody liked the idea of an athletic background. Everybody liked my background. Uh, there is a difference, however, and you're right. We did hire a lot of athletes. Um, but there's a difference between somebody who played ball in college mm-hmm. and a guy that actually earned his living as a coach. So the typical, even professional athlete probably puts in about 30, 35 hours, max, max, a week where the coach of that team is putting in 75, 80 hours. And the player tends to be responsible for himself most of the time. The coach is responsible for that entire side of the ball and the entire organization. Mm -hmm. So the responsibility that a coach has uh, is far more significant than what an individual player might have. And that leads very, very nicely to a role in leadership and a role in management. The role of a player, though, very fits nicely into the mm-hmm. role of a producer. I see. Did you get this, a similar rush that you did in football games and some points on Wall Street? I think the answer is yes. But I said, I think to be successful, though, there's so much intensity going on that you can't get too euphoric and you can't get too low. To me, a practice, a typical day on the street when you're on the trading floor was like a practice. It's intense. Mm-hmm. It goes longer than a practice. Uh, but then, you know, normally you get to the weekend, you get a little bit of a break. Um, nothing I've ever done is intense as coaching football in season. Mm-hmm. But there, there are similarities to a football practice and what goes on in the trading floor. Yeah, I'm sure. And there is overlap to that. And so you left your dream of, of being a college football coach to go to Wall Street to provide for your family. You know, you fast forward a decade or two and you have a big job at a big bank. Um, you've more than provided for your family. And then you do another kind of crazy jump. Tell me about that. Well, in the 1990s, it uh, was the dot-com boom, of course, in our country. And by March 2000, which lasted th- three years, March 2003, the dot-com bubble burst. And that had put a lot of pressure on firms that had become public companies mm-hmm. because of the opportunity to take advantage of what the markets were giving them. Ameritrade was one of those firms. And... Um, they were going out of business, and they did a national search. They offered me the opportunity, and I moved then from Omaha to – I'm sorry, I moved from New York City to Omaha to become the CEO of TD Ameritrade. And what was that sales pitch like? Like, hey, you know, Joe, Joe, leave this, this, jo- this sure thing job you have at, at Merrill and come and lead this dying 
um, a small online brokerage at the time, right? You had to, you had to make sure that everything I do in my life is, is, is centered around the idea that you got to take responsibility for yourself. So I had to do my own due diligence in terms of what was going on in Ameritrade, and I knew we had some problems, but I also thought they, that they had put a lot of money into their brand, so people knew what the brand was, and mm-hmm. I knew they had decent technology. And what happens in situations like that, frankly, your head gets a little too big and you start to expand more than what you normally would. And so I thought that, certainly I knew there was a chance we'd go out of business, and I thought there was a chance we could really hit a home run. But I thought no matter what, no matter what, we were probably going to improve the organization. So I thought it was worth taking that shot. I see. But you're right, Steve. I was leaving a, you know, one of the premier brands in the globe to go to a firm that really was a junk bond, you know, that was struggling and potentially was going out of business. Now, before you make that jump, do you have in your mind a strategy on how to help the company? Or do you say... I like the brand, I like technology, I'm going to go there and get like, you know, jump in feet first and figure it out when I'm on the ground. In the, they, it was, it was, it was evident to me that they had gotten in over their head. So one of the things that you want to be able to do in life is really know who you are. I call it spiritual sadness. Well, in the business world, it's what are your core competencies? What are you really good at? What do you, uh, how do you leverage those and the competitive advantages mm-hmm. and then, then perform in the niche markets that you choose to participate in? I kind of thought that Ameritrade sort of lost their way. I thought maybe they were bigger than what they thought they were, number one. Number two, I also went there in the middle of this recession, middle of 2001. Mm-hmm. There were about 200 firms that had online, online brokerage presences back then, about 25 of which everybody knew. Nobody, nobody had started consolidating that industry. Mm-hmm. And I thought if we could get our act together, we could potentially begin consolidating the industry. So I could see a real opportunity there that I thought would be worth going after. Um, and I had, I, I'm not a big spender, and I did get paid very well at Merrill Lynch, and mm-hmm. I did a good job of saving my money. So if things had blown up, they had blown up, but I still would have been able to take care of my family. But I thought the risk-reward, and I was betting on myself, yeah. and I thought the risk-reward was a good enough one to make that decision. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. A curious thing happened to FreshBooks on its way to becoming the largest cloud accounting software platform for small business owners in the world. As a company, they've managed to stay small while soaring to over 10 million users strong. Or is it the other way around? Has FreshBooks customer base soared because their company has stayed small? Named as a small giant on Forbes' list of best small companies this year, FreshBooks has been recognized for focusing on greatness over growth. With literally two clicks, you can set yourself up to receive payments online. By drastically simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online, and delivering award-winning customer service that usually picks up in under three rings, FreshBooks has changed how small business owners deal with their day-to-day paperwork. This is really only a fraction of what FreshBooks can do, and they want you to see more. To claim your 30-day free trial, no credit card required, just go to freshbooks.com slash Forbes and enter interview in the How Did You Hear About Us section. The Forbes interview is brought to you by the all-new crossover Toyota CHR. Edgy, stylish, and fun to drive? Visit toyota.com slash c-hr to learn more. Embrace the unexpected. Now, when you were at Merrill um, before you left, how many kind of people? How many people did you ever pour into you about? About five, six thousand at Merrill at the time. Yeah. Okay. And then what was Ameritrade? We had about six thousand or so when I got there, and mm-hmm. you know, within a year or so, we cut that down to about twenty seven hundred. I see. And was there a big shift in going from a you know 
a big division, a big leader of a bank to being a CEO of a company? Was there a- <laughs> well, different companies, they're, they're yeah. two different worlds. So when you really look at Ameritrade, while our service to our clients was based on the financial world, we were really a technology company in a financial service wrapper. Yeah. And I didn't know anything about technology, and I didn't know that much about the online brokerage business. But we had plenty of people that knew plenty about technology and plenty about online brokerage. But I was a pretty good business leader, and I had a pretty good business mind. And a lot of these things you look at, and you begin with going back to what are our core competencies. We figured out that they were transactions. We were great transaction processing machine. So how does that translate to the financial world? Buying and selling of stocks. Mm-hmm. And that's we got rid of everything else. We focused totally on that. We started to become profitable. And with the money we, we were profitable with, we started to acquire other companies. And in the beginning, in the beginning, the first purchase we made was a national discount broker. We paid $154 million for it. Mm-hmm. We were worth $700 million at the time. We screwed that up. We're out of business. The second one we do... We're worth a billion one. We buy Daytech worth a billion one. We mm-hmm. screw that up. We're out of business. But by the time we finished the Daytech deal, we were we were good enough. We, were, we had a solid foundation. Well, you must have been. You moved from you know Manhattan, you know, top sell side bank to Omaha, Nebraska. That must have been a giant culture shift for you um, personally, but also I'm sure the culture of your employees and kind of the attitudes and the backgrounds must have been very different. How do you kind of? make that jump from people would assume the, the fast lane of Manhattan to more of a you know, quieter Nebraska kind of feel. Emotionally and mentally and intellectually, the biggest jump that I ever made was my first year as a head, head high school coach when I was 22 when I left New York City to go to Delaware, which I thought was the deep south at yep. the time. <laughs> that was an adjustment. Um, but as a coach, I lived in Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New Hampshire. Uh, so I had other experiences. So literally going from New York City to Omaha. By the way, Omaha is a great town. Yep. The only people that people that don't think that is because they haven't been there. That transition was actually an easy transition. People in Omaha were terrific. They mm-hmm. were welcoming. You know, the only issue we had, we had a real challenge with what was going on in the business. So you went. You first joined Ameritrade. They were on the ropes. Um, say a seven hundred million dollar um, firm. And fast forward a decade, and you brought them to $10 billion. Yeah. By the t- in 2000, I began in the middle of 2001. By the time I stepped down in 2008, this is after the blow-up in 2008. Yep. We'd actually got up to $14 billion. Um, yeah, our market cap was $10 billion. And what was the, you said, what was kind of the secret sauce to that? Like, how did you be, do things that, you know, this place was struggling, then you come in, and obviously a whole team. What was the strategy? Was it you said focus on what we do well and grow that like crazy? Yeah, that was, that was the beginning of it. But, but you, I said in the very beginning, everything's about people. So how we position our pe- people, what are the skill sets you need for a particular job to be successful? What are the skill sets of the people we have? What kind of skill sets do we need to import? How do we reorganize ourselves with a focus on what we're good at and get rid of everything else? That's where we began. And then when we started to be somewhat successful, we're the ones that we led the entire industry in consolidation and acquisitions. That's what we did. What we were really good at, we focused on that, mm-hmm. we became very good at it, and then we started to roll up the industry. So you roll it up, and then you're at the top of your game, and then it's time for another Moglia leap of faith. Tell me about, <laughs> about the jump, the return to coaching. So in 2008, we, had, we, had, um, we closed our acquisition of Waterhouse, 
Ameritrade bought TD Waterhouse from TD, and that's where it became TD Ameritrade. Mm-hmm. And uh, we closed that in 2006. It took three years to get the integ- integration done. And the board had, board had known that uh, there were other things I might want to do with my life. For example, 2004, I was actually contacted by a group uh, that wanted to know if I had interest in an NFL commissioner's job mm-hmm. when Taglia Blue stepped down in 2006. Wow. Okay. I would have been very interested in that. Yeah. But 2006 came, and I was in the middle of our close and our integration. I did get a contact from the search firm at the time. I would have loved that opportunity. I'm not suggesting I would have gotten the job, but I think I would have been on a short list for that job. Mm-hmm. So were there other things in my life that I wanted to be able to do, and I wasn't sure what they would be, but I did think there'd be something. Now, when we stepped down in 2008, our, our return for our investors, and 2008, if you recall, was Armageddon on Wall Street. Yeah. Was 500%. We outperformed every financial firm in the world. I mean, Jamie Dimon, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, uh, Merrill Lynch at the time, uh, well, Bank of America, I guess, at the time. Yeah. Uh, and, and I could be prouder of that. Now, if how'd, had, you, how'd you do that? How did you weather that storm in 2008 where so many Wall Street firms and so many online brokers really got in trouble? To really, to really accomplish something special, you always have to push the envelope. You've got to be aggressive. You've got to go after things. You can never cheat. You can never cross the line. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, your responsibility, though, is you still got to protect your franchise. Now, not by being conservative, yeah. but just by not putting it at too much risk. And what was going on at the time, uh, interest rates were very low. The only sector that was performing reasonably well was what was going on in the housing market. We know there was a disaster associated with that. So firms started to invest in mortgage assets that gave them a higher yield with mm-hmm. longer duration and leverage that 50 to 1. Now, if you're leveraged that way and action starts to move against you, you become a cork in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And you put your entire, if you're an individual, you go bankrupt. If you're a business, you go out of business. And that's what happened. Now, we just didn't do that. So we did not want to take the risk of our balance sheet and putting them in the mortgage market, and mm-hmm. we didn't want to go that far in the curve. So we were making good money in terms of our net interest margins, not nearly as much as somebody else, but nowhere we were taking the risk. So when the world blew up, we did none of the things mm-hmm. that everybody else did that created that problem. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like finding an onion ring in your french fries good. Feel that way every single day when you work with a Trunk Club personal stylist. Meet your stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. Here I'm walking through a field and I'm thinking about a girl just a few years younger than me that was stabbed to death. There are 120,000 unsolved murder cases in America, and each one is called a cold case. She said, I think my dad could be responsible. I think he killed them. These are some of those rare cases. Cold Case Files, the podcast. Don't miss a moment. Subscribe now on the Podcast One app, Apple Podcasts, or at podcastone.com. And don't forget to watch your DVR, Cold Case Files, the TV show, every Thursday at 10 on A&E. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. If you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree. Rethink payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. And so you said 2008, you decided to, was it, at that point, was it retiring? Was it taking a break? Was it no, I was, just, next step? I was just stepping down. Yeah, what else yeah. might I want to do next? The board asked me if I'd be chairman. Um, I said I would. Honored to be, still honored to be chairman of the board of TD Ameritrade. And because we had done so well in that environment, it would have been like literally um, 
we won two national championships, BCS national championship football, but not like Alabama winning those national championships. Mm-hmm. It would have been like Wake Forest is winning the national yeah. championship. And that's probably a fair analogy. And so if you had won two national championships in a row at Wake Forest, what kind of job do you think you might get? That was the situation yep. I, I was in. And frankly, I was probably never, not probably, I was never more in demand in my life from a career perspective. And then I got a call from a group of alumni associated with Yale telling me at the end of the 2008 season, there was a chance the football job would be open. Would I be interested? And I remember looking at the telephone and saying, guys, you know I haven't coached for over 20 years. They said, we know that, but we've spent a lot of time looking at the skill sets mm-hmm. coach is supposed to have and yours. And we actually think you not only have those skill sets, but you actually have competitive advantage. There's only one issue. So what's that? In 106 years of college football, nothing like this has ever happened. And it's going to take a president, probably, not mm-hmm. just an athletic director, that understands the significance of what somebody like I might bring to the table to be able to have to, to make that decision. Think about it. So I did, and uh, six, five, six months later, decided I want to go back. Wow. So you, you had an offers for some very, I'm sure, high-profile, cushy, cushy CEO leadership roles, and you decided to make to fight your way into a gritty you know, football program, like that role of a head coach, which is the exact opposite of kind of a more you know, pushy, cushy, I'd say, <laughs> well, corporate job, right? Well, Steve, in 2008, 2009, financial services, there were no cushy CEO true, jobs. True. The world was blowing up. There's actually no cushy CEO jobs at all, but you know what I'm saying? It's no, a different, that's true. It's a no, different, different level. Different level. world. Different world. Yeah. And, you know, I had been, in, been on Wall Street by then, you know, 24 years. Yeah. Uh, I was at Meritrade for seven. I was at uh, Merrill Lynch for 17. And uh, it, just, it was interesting in terms of my approach going back. This surprises some people because I'm not a big football fan. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know who's playing quarterback where. I don't care. When I go home, I don't watch football. I'd rather watch a movie. Uh, I'm, I'm addicted to some of the series on Netflix. Uh, I, I, I'd rather read, listen mm-hmm. to music, do something else. But what I... I do love about the game is it's like advanced masters chess with 22 people operating at once with a lot at stake. Mm-hmm. I love that strategy. And I think I'm pretty good at that. The ability to put together an organization, that's something I had done for a long time. I, I can certainly do that. And then lastly, always what's motivated me is the impact I have either on our people and going back into football, the impact that would have maybe on our players, helping a boy really grow in to become a man, our staff, the community, the school, I get tremendous satisfaction from that. Mm-hmm. So at a point in my life where I really could have done anything, I didn't think I could do anything more significant with my life than doing what I was doing by going back. I didn't, didn't expect it to be as hard as it was, though. Yeah, you weren't just going back. You, you had a fight back, and people thought you were crazy. Tell me a little bit about that journey. And, I, and speaking of, you were in Omaha, and I heard you asked for a certain uh, small investor in Omaha for his, his advice about, uh, about your crazy idea to go uh, back into football. I'd gotten to know Warren Buffett pretty well, and we would have dinner probably three times or so a year, and I did share this with him. And I think in his head, he said, if you're going to do anything, clearly you've got to win. Yeah. You've got to win, but you've got to do something you love. Now, he has done something. He's been a winner, but he's done something he's loved his entire life. So this was, I wasn't a business guy that wanted to go to football. I was a football coach mm-hmm. who took a hiatus from football, was a reasonably successful business guy, and I wanted to go back to coaching. So that's not a typical transition in terms of coming back. But that's what I did. You did. And you, you, you took a, an unpaid internship at University of Nebraska. Then you coached at the, was it the, the United Football League? Yep. And then tell me about how you broke into Coastal Carolina. 
Well, the, the, I needed the spot at Nebraska. And my title was executive advisor to the head coach was Bo Pelini. Tom Osborne, the storied athletic director and head football coach at Nebraska, was the guy that made that introduction. So I worked with them for two years. Mm-hmm. The UFL was a great league. It really, really was. It was like, like two-thirds, for example, of my team had started in the NFL. But there were only five teams. The other coaches were Jimmy Fossil, New York Giants, yep. Denny Green, Marty Schottenheimer, uh, Jerry Glanville. And I, now, I had, we had an Omaha franchise. They had fired the other guy. I was going back to football. They gave me that opportunity. Mm-hmm. The problem was the league was poorly, poorly run and went out of business. We virtually weren't even able to finish that season. Mm-hmm. David Desenzo is the, Dr. Desenzo is the president of Coastal Carolina. And he had been following my story and contacted me in 2011 and said that there, that uh, he had been following me. He said, it's not going to be easy for a typical president to sign off on you. But somewhere, someone will. Mm-hmm. Before someone does, I want to be the guy. I want you to come here. And I need to do a lot of homework on Coastal. And I did. And he was the guy that really did step up for me. And I decided that's where I wanted to go. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Here at the Forbes interview, we know that creating great things sometimes comes down to having the right support system. That's why we're excited to have WordPress.com as a sponsor. They've been supporting us behind the scenes for a while as home to Forbes blogs. We use WordPress.com every day. And let me tell you, whether you're looking to create a personal blog, a business site, or both, You'll make a big impact when you build your website on WordPress.com. Even if you don't have experience building a website, WordPress can guide you through the process. They have hundreds of themes to get you started. Just pick a template and make it your own. You'll get built-in search engine optimization and social sharing. When you build your website on WordPress.com, you're part of a community with support 24-7 when you need it. Come see why more websites run on WordPress than on any other platform. Get started today with 15% off any new plan purchase. Go to wordpress.com slash Forbes to create your website and find the membership plan that's right for you. That's wordpress.com slash Forbes for 15% off a brand new website. Wordpress.com slash Forbes. What was the reception when people found out that, you know, the, the fans of school when this, uh, like, were people thinking, hey, this, this Wall Street guy wants to come here and do like a fantasy football camp kind of thing? Like, what was what was the reception and kind of what did you do when you got on the ground? The guy that preceded me was the guy that started the football program at Coastal Carolina. In his previous three years, you know, it was 29 to 28, they wanted to be, be, have a national reputation. We weren't anywhere near that. Uh, the two best teams in the league, we were one and nine against. We got killed half that time. Nobody that it was objective that would have looked at that would have been surprised at the fact that he was let mm-hmm. go. But... He was very, very well-known and very well-respected in that community, like yeah. within 20 miles of the campus. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people never did their homework when they heard I was coming in. So they were annoyed that we're getting rid of this guy. Mm-hmm. And who is this business guy? Hey, I'm sure he's bought the job. He's never coached before. Uh, one blog said, I was good because I never looked at the blogs, but my son yeah. did. <laughs> and one blog said that... Uh, the president should be fired for having let go of the coach that he let go of, but for hiring, hiring this coach, this Wall Street reject who couldn't find the job. <laughs> and people, probably most people, hated me back then. And uh, but we started to do really well. We turned the program around right away. We started to make noise right away. And again, at, outside of twenty-five miles of that area, yeah. nobody, nobody concerned about that. But the pre- president actually got death threats. I mean, this was this was some passion going on about this. But I think I'm, I was well-respected at the end of the first season. But it was a tough, 
tough go around in the beginning. And you've had incredible success with the team in five years. How does Joe? How did you? How do you coach differently than a typical Division One, you know, major football coach? Like, well, what two, is your two approach? things for me. Well, first of all, I do approach things differently because yeah. of my back. I'm a much better head coach because my experience in the business world. Mm-hmm. And um, coaches tend to do things the same way. You just have some guys that are better at it uh, than what others are. But everybody works hard and winds up going after it. So. Mm-hmm. What's the, what are you trying to achieve? What's the best way to do that? For example, recruiting. And I won't spend much time recruiting, but coaches, some co- they, they can be, some are good salesmen, some are not. But recruiting is a marketing skill set. Yeah. It's not a coaching skill set. So you don't even approach recruiting as a coach. You approach recruiting as a marketer and a sales guy. Well, that would be the way I would think. Yeah. That's not the way the typical program would think. But at the end of the day, the two things that we do that nobody else does um, our program has zero rules. We don't have literally one rule written up in our program. We have a belief, though, and a standard upon which the entire program is belt, built, and that's standing on your own two feet, take mm-hmm. responsibility for yourself, treat others with dignity and respect, and live with the consequences of your actions. Now, I've got 125 players. I've got another 25 coaches, interns, analysts, et cetera. Yeah. They're all male. Yeah. So that became BAM for us, be a man, but not some tough macho guy. Be a man is somebody who takes responsibility for themselves, treats others with dignity and respect, loses the consequences of their actions. That was my philosophy my very first time around as a coach. It's in my high school playbook. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, is the, that is the leadership philosophy I had in the business world, both at Merrill Lynch and in Meritrade, and it's the philosophy that I brought back to the game. Uh, so that standard is all we're about. That's number one. Nobody yeah. else does it that way. No, I'm sure, every, I mean, I'm sure that's a, every coach ha- has that goal, has that, they say it's, it's good lip service. How do you actually make that kind of stand on your own two feet and treat people with respect? How do you enforce that? How do you teach it? How do you make sure it's really the first part of your culture? I think every coach would say something like that, but every coach is also going to have 100 rules that everybody's got to live up to. Anything, whether it's football, whether it's academics, your behavior on and off campus, every one of our guys is somebody's son or somebody's brother. Uh, how do they live up to that responsibility? It's pretty much... The, the, the typical individual that, that is, gets recruited to play college football, uh, they were all high school stars. But almost every one of them comes to us with a subconscious sense of entitlement. Okay. Somebody's going to help them. Somebody's going to bail it out. That's not the way the world's going to work later on. So we don't fool around with that. They are truly, absolutely, 100% responsible for themselves. Mm-hmm. And that falls every phase of their life. Um, that is the way we live. That is the way we operate. The other thing that we do different is, um, as, as we're still an education, we're still an academic institution, mm-hmm. as any college is, is supposed to be. And so what happens when you step down from football? I'm very proud of our record with getting guys to the pros and what Coastal Carolina has done as far yes. as professional football goes. But at the end of the day, football comes to an end. So how do you lay a foundation upon which to build? Yeah, because a vast majority of these players are not going to have careers as players in football. But even uh, correct. But even the ones that are not are still gonna, career is going to come to an end. Yes. So yes. what happens? What happens when football is over? So what do we really do as a staff that nobody else does? Everybody supports the student athlete on campus. Yes. But what does the staff actually do? And we actually give up thirty minutes of practice every week. I'm going to repeat that, Steve. We give up thirty minutes of practice every week. Um, nobody does that. Mm-hmm. And we have a session we call 
Life After Football, LAF. I usually run that session, but not always. I do with the entire team. And we talk about things that are going on in the world that are important, that our guys should be aware of, or things that are going to be relevant to their lives later on. Mm-hmm. Um, the you, BAM concept mm-hmm. and that Life After Football concept, it, we really do. And other people pay lip service to that, but nobody handles it that way. Can you give me an example of something you would cover in uh, one of the LAF uh, sessions? Well, every year we have the anniversary of 9-11. Um, and that's always an opportunity for me to talk to the guys, not about people flying planes into buildings, but terrorism could very well be the single greatest threat in the world today. Well, how did terrorism start? What are the religious affiliations with terrorism? How do they fund themselves today? How do they operate? Where are they based, actually? How does this take place? Uh, we talk about My guys know what ISIS means, for yeah. example. Not many people actually do. Um, then from there, you go, well, how do we defend ourselves? What's the role of the military? Well, there are guys my, and women my age, the kids of my same age as my kids, that put their lives on the line in the Middle East. Why? So we can live in freedom. That goes back to, though, we should be appreciative of that. And with those freedoms come responsibility. You go right back to ban. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's that big a threat, we can only pray that our political and military leaders have the guts to do what they believe is right mm-hmm. in terms of making decisions. Well, how do we influence that? Well, we live in a democracy, so we vote. So college football has been around about 115 years. In 115 years of college football, any level, the only program whose entire football team ever voted on election day was Coastal Carolina's last November. Oh, okay. Last November, my entire team voted. That did other you guys than maybe a military. Did you, did, you get on, did you get on buses? Yeah, we get, took our buses. We had three Coast Carolina buses. Yep. We went into town. Uh, it was about a 15, 20 minute trip. And we were there for a couple of hours. And our guys had already registered. And uh, you know, I couldn't be proud of the fact that, that we did that. But that's a responsibility. It goes back to the BAM thing. Everything mm-hmm. goes back to the BAM thing. So, what's our responsibility? Um, that's one of the things, for example, we did that mm-hmm. no one else does. That's a direct relationship. Because with BAM as well as the LAF. And you also use your, um, you know, your, your vast experience on Wall Street and in corporate America and business for these, these young students that like when football is over, do you help them with the, the business or help them get involved in, in finance or just in, in business in general if they, if they want to? We do all that. You know, we talk to them certainly about how to budget themselves, how to handle the money. We talk about those things. But, but, what, but what we spend a little bit more time on, and nobody else does it this way, um, I call it spiritual soundness. So no matter what, when your football career comes to an end, the demographics in this country where it is, there's a good chance you've got to work till you're about 70. Well, mm-hmm. that's a long time. Yeah. So how sad is it to do something that you're either not cut out for or you don't really love? So we have this concept we call spiritual soundness. Most people really don't know who they are. We become a composite of the perceptions of the people around us. So we ask you to write this down. Who am I really? What are my favorite colors? What, what, what kind of music do I like? What are my skill sets? What kind of son am I? What kind of brother? What kind of boyfriend? What kind of player? What kind of student? And you keep writing. Then you go back to it a month later, but you can't share this with anybody because when you, once you do, you're looking for a subconscious approval from mm-hmm. them. And you find out, you know, I'm not really, I don't really, I'm not that good at that. That's really not my favorite music. I like it as my girlfriend does it for whatever the reasons are. Yeah. And you get to the point, you learn who you are. Once you learn who you are, you have a peace of mind and you make better decisions under stress. If you make better decisions under stress, you increase the probability those decisions are going to be the right decisions and that's going to make you more productive, feel better about yourself. If you do those things, chances are you're going to be happy. I'm glad to get into how that translates to the career path if you like. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you know, I know what my skill sets are. So now I think about a path I want to go down. Not who I want to work for. 
What path? What what do I want to do later on as far as your career path goes? What are the skill sets that are required to be an engineer, a lawyer, and a, a coach, a teacher, a Wall Street executive? What mm-hmm. are the skill sets that are required to be a developer? Do I have those skill sets? If you're honest with yourself, you know whether or not you do. Oftentimes you don't. Mm-hmm. If you don't, do, do not go down that path, no matter what. If you do, you still got to ask yourself one more question. Is this something I'd love and be passionate about? If the answer to both of those questions are yes, there's a great chance that you're going to have a competitive advantage in that career path, and you've approached it differently than probably 90% of the people that are thinking about that. That is the avenue you're supposed to go down. By the way, now you decide what your major should be, not ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Now, you just, now you're back into your major, and in the summertime, what are the type of intern, professional internships that are going to help you test that hypothesis. Is this a field you really think you want? Plus, looks good on your resume because you're experienced in an area that you want to go forward in later. That ability to be able to think about your career path that way is a huge differentiator. Not all my guys actually go through that. Yeah. But the ones that do, it makes a difference, and I wish every one of them did go through that. Yeah, just students in general. No one tells that to you as a college freshman, regardless of athlete or not, what school you go to. It's kind of, it's, it's a very interesting concept. You really, Steve, tend to spend more of your time talking about what you're going to major in. Yeah. Again, to me, now academia would say you figure that out first. Uh-uh. You don't figure it out first. Figure out what you think you might want to do, then back into your major. Yeah. The major should be something that helps you get to where you want to go. You don't begin with that and hope you wind up somewhere where you might be able to use your major. What's the best major for a football coach? <laughs> Well, mine's economics, so I would say without question is economics. <laughs> now, I was doing some research, and I heard I came across a conspiracy theory that you were one of the key reasons why the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. I'd love to hear that story. I think the conspiracy theory is the family that owns the Chicago Cubs are the Ricketts family. And uh, Joe Ricketts is the founder and my predecessor is CEO of TD Ameritrade. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was the guy that hired me. Now, the conspiracy theory might suggest that we were going out of business, and had we gone out of business, the Ricketts family would still be well off, but they never would have been able to buy the Cubs. But because, frankly, the success we had um, and the, the, the net worth of the Ricketts family became incredibly significant, mm. and you can make, it, it might be a little bit of a stretch, but you can make the <laughs> argument, you know, without what happened at Ameritrade, they would not have been able to buy the Cubs. So that would be the conspiracy theory. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. Having an up-to-date payment system is one of those things like a rattle in your engine that you might let slide to the bottom of the to-do list. Everything's working now, so you'll get to it when you get to it. But that's not necessarily a practical strategy. Leave it too long, and you could be stranded on the side of the highway. And when we're talking about getting paid... You don't want to be stranded. It might not be a bad time to check in with Braintree and keep your business humming. Braintree. Rethink payments. Find out more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. The Forbes interview is brought to you by WordPress.com. WordPress powers 27% of all websites, including Forbes blogs. Get 15% off your new website today at WordPress.com slash Forbes. That's WordPress.com slash Forbes. And I want to go back real quick to uh, you're talking about helping people decide what they want to do in their lives and what they'd be good at. Um, I think we all come across people. I have friends now that they either want to, you know, change a job. They've been, they want either want to 
they have a job that they love, but they need to make more money and they want to make a change or other people that are comfortable making money, but they want to do a, a dream, a dream job, kind of follow a passion. How, what advice do you have for someone who's looking to make a major career shift? Um, especially when you know, everyone talks about, oh, if you're young, you know, fail fast, try things out. But a lot of people and people like you at the time, you had four kids. You know, it wasn't you were taking a fun risk. You were making you're betting your life on these kind of changes. What do you what advice would you give someone trying to make a giant career change? I would go back to the concept of spiritual soundness. Now, if you really know who you are, it doesn't just stop with, I think I want to do these types of things down the road as far as a career goes. It's like, am I an urban person? Am mm-hmm. I a rural person, suburban person? Uh, would I be comfortable outside the country? Would I be comfortable in a certain environment? Am I comfortable in the cold? Would I be more comfortable in the South? Uh, do I want a big family? What kind of father am I? Where are my priorities? What kind of woman am I going to have a relationship with? Or a man, what kind of person am I going to have a relationship with? You need to know and understand. That's part of the spiritual soundness piece. So if you're in a particular career path, so for example, I went through this process when I decided to go back to coaching. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, to leave coaching to go to, to go to Wall Street. I had four kids. So I thought I could be, I, I thought I'd be a pretty good uh, defense attorney. But I can't afford to go to law school. There's mm-hmm. not a chance I'm going to be able to do something like that. So that's out. Yeah. So I had to pick something that also allowed me to live up to my responsibility. You can't ignore those things. And life is a balance. You can't always do ideally what you'd like to do because that may not be able to fill the other aspects of your life that you're responsible for. Now, remember, every time I say responsible, you go back to the BAM concept. This never not comes up. So it's, a, it's, it's going back to who am I really, what are my responsibilities, what do I want to try to do, and figure out the best way to prioritize and balance that. And you increase the probability of making the right decisions. Wow. Cool. You gave me a ton of time, but I'd love to just real quick spin forward and talk about football in Coastal Carolina. Like, what, what are you excited about right now? What are you focusing on? Um, for this season coming up? I'm incredibly proud of what we've been able to accomplish at Coast Carolina and uh, our record, what we've done each year, and a big part of, we have been recently invited to the, we are already part of the Sunbelt Conference. So mm-hmm. we moved from football division one, you have two groups, FCS, FBS. We've been invited to move up to the FBS. I'm excited because of that. So this coming year, we're going to play uh, a Sunbelt schedule. Uh, we're going to play Arkansas, for example, as one of our non-league games. Mm-hmm. It's going to take a little while to transition to that, but we will be good there, and then we'll start competing for league championships and going to bowl game. What we're going to have trouble getting to, even though I couldn't be prouder of the Coast Carolina baseball team last year winning mm-hmm. the national championship, is it's not going to be easy for somebody like us to beat Alabama in football. Yeah. Whereas the FCS level – we would have won a national championship if we kind of stuck with it for a little while. And making that kind of change, that chain, making that jump in leagues, does that change any part of your game plan, or is it just same old stuff, just different different opponents? No, it's, a, it's different opponents, but our processes and the way we do things is part of the reason why we've got to where we've got to. So they're competitive advantage for us. Other programs don't realize that yet, but they are competitive advantage for us. So the only thing we really needed to do, we needed to – go out with our recruiting offers earlier because these kids were getting snapped up a little bit sooner. But other than speed up our recruiting process, the process in terms of the way we coach and recruit is identical to what we've been doing. Do you think you've started a trend? Are we going to see um, non – are we going to see people from different backgrounds trying to jump into college football? People still have trouble believing I have the job. You have trouble <laughs> thinking, you know, I'm supposed to get another job. So, yeah, I don't think I started a trend there. Now – 
the fact that I've done it, maybe maybe someone another university might be more open. Mm-hmm. So, but remember though, I also spent half my life coaching football. Yeah. I coach for a career, and I think sometimes what happens, I'll get somebody who wants to call and talk a little bit, and he's a business guy and he loves football and he wants to go coach, but he didn't coach football for a career. He yeah. might have been a GA for a year or so. But so so again, it's a kind of unique position because there are not many people that have done this. It's like people that want to open a restaurant because they love going to restaurants. Wouldn't, wouldn't recommend it unless you've been a, <laughs> no, unless right. you've been a chef for yeah, a, a decade. Right. I wouldn't right. uh, recommend it. Well, Joe, this is a great session. I really appreciate uh, your time and coming in. I appreciate the fact, Steve, that you took the time to invite me. It was an honor. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you. You know, one other little thing that you, you just kind of a, it's yeah. a fun little factoid. In 2008, when I stepped down as CEO of TD Ameritrade, one of the last things I did was authorize the naming rights for the stadium. TD Ameritrade Park is where they play the College World Series, and they pick the national championship. We have done that in Omaha for the last 50 years or so, the last several years at TD Ameritrade Park. Well, in 2016, Coastal Carolina won the national championship by winning the College World Series in Omaha at TD Ameritrade Park. For that, that gives me goosebumps just to think about it. That's something I'm really very proud of. That's amazing. That's like talk about the crossroads of, of everything. That's, that's incredible. Did you go to the game? Oh, yeah, of course. I definitely went to the game. I went to the, I went to the regionals and I went to the, to the super regionals, and I was in Omaha. Yeah. That just makes you think there's a that's – that's just an incredible that, – that coincidence is you can't, you can't make that up. I kept going back and forth between the Ameritrade suite and between the Coastal Carolina suite. I was even in the dugout for a little bit. That's good. You can take like the best, the best chicken wings from both sides and uh, <laughs> compare them. That's right. Ameritrade tend to have a little bit of chicken wings. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Joe. Thanks, Steve. That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. If you'd like to reach us, email us at interview at podcastone.com. Thanks for listening. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like finding an onion ring in your french fries good. Feel that way every single day when you work with a Trunk Club personal stylist. Meet your stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying. And the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.